If you can have your Bibles open to Genesis chapter 12, that would help us as we go. Well, we started the series um, last week on Abraham, and um, uh, he received that promise. Um, and it, 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 it's a it's a it's a promising start. <laughs> it's a good start, but we see quickly how human Abraham is um, in our story in, in chapter 12. But as we turn to it, let's pray that God will speak to us. Lord, thank you so much for your living word. We thank you that you're a speaking God who loves to speak to us. And we thank you that your words have great power to shape our lives, and not just our lives, but the history. And we pray that you'll shape our minds and hearts today, that we may be agents um, of your work in this world. Be with us in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever told a lie that went out of control? You wish you hadn't told it, but you can't eat your words back because once your words are out, they're out. You just hope that they die somewhere and don't get resurrected again and again in other people's conversations. Um, I moved to the U.S. when I was 12, and at the time, um, Karate Kid (laughs) just come out. And so everywhere I went, people asked me, do you know karate? And I said, well, I'm Korean. And they would go, well, do you know Taekwondo? And I would go, okay, I, yes, I do. Um, it's true, I, I know a little bit of Taekwondo. And then the, 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 the immediate follow-up question would be, what belt are you? Well, I would say, I, did, um, I was a red stripe. I, I went as high as red stripe, which is in between blue and red belt. But it's kind of lame to say red stripe. And so I'd say, shamefully, I'm not... Uh, I'm not proud of this at all, but I said, well, black, black belt. <laughs> well, the last thing that I wanted in that, um, in that situation was anyone to challenge me in a fight. <laughs> because I wasn't a black belt. Telling a lie is frightening, but being challenged physically would be much worse. And Abram's story is like that. He tells a lie, and the lie takes a life of its own. And it puts him and his wife and his, the, the, his family and the promise that God made to him all in jeopardy. So 4,000 year, years ago, God called Abram out of his home country, and God promised him that he was a man for all nations. And with that promise, Abram hopes and lives in the land of Canaan. But look down to verse 10. There is a famine in the land. Well, when there are famines in Hong Kong or other places in the, around the world these days, what happens is the fry, uh, food prices go up. But we're not directly affected by famine these days. But that's not the case in a society of nomads 4,000 years ago. They didn't have savings account or a global uh, market economy. They didn't have huge storage of food. Abram was a nomad. He lived in tents. He, um, so he had to pack up everything that he had and move to a different place to feed his flock and search for, a, uh, for, search for food for them. And famine, famine meant that there was no grass for his flock. And without grass in the land, their sheep and cattle would die. And people don't have then milk and, and, and meat to eat. Famine questioned their survival. So Abram 
did what any sensible man would do in that position. He went down to Egypt. I, I, I don't know, uh, as I was researching for this, apparently Egyptians and Indians in the world are the first people to, do, to, do, uh, to have an agricultural economy. They grew wheat and barley, vegetables, figs, melons around, around Nile, and that's how it became a great empire, civilization. And so Abram went down to Egypt to search for food. And going to a foreign country isn't easy now, but it was much harder back then. There was no police protection for foreigners, no embassy you can go to to plead your case. Egyptians could attack them and take everything that they had. After all, the family is as strong as the number of people in the family. And that's one of the reasons why having children, having sons is so important in nomadic families. And as Abram entered Egypt, he feared, um, he, he feared for his, his, his life, not so much because of his riches, but because of his wife. As he says in verse 12, he thought that when Egyptians see Sarai, his wife, they would kill him and take her away. So any loyal man at this point, I think, would go lovingly confess his his love for his wife and and vow to protect her from dishonor. But Abram, at this point, tells his wife to lie to save his skin. We're still in the first point. He says, he tells her in verse 13, to tell everyone that she is his sister, so that I will be treated well for your sake and my life will be spared because of you, he says. You see, the brother of a beautiful person, brother of a beautiful sister, would be treated well for her sake when and if they tried to woo her. Some might... um, some might defend him by saying, actually, Sarah Sarai was actually his uh, half-sister, as we find out in chapter, Genesis chapter 20, when he does this again. They had the same father, but a different mother. I'm just going to go off on, on a little tangent here. You might find that a disturbing fact, um, half-sister. But I just want you to know that in that culture, this wasn't an abnormal practice. First of all, marrying within the tribe was a big priority. Everyone was fiercely loyal to their family, to their tribe, and marrying outside of the tribe was considered a betrayal. And Abram, in fact, later on, when he has his son, Isaac, makes his servant promise that Isaac would marry somebody from his own tribe. And so they go all the way out to um, Aram Naharaim to find Rebekah, Isaac's first, uh, second cousin for him. And marrying within the family was an important principle. And if you think this is weird, it also has modern, modern precedence as well. At one point, all of European ro- royalties, um, they intermarried so much that they were really one family. In fact, Habsburg family was known for their inter, uh, inbreeding. They had apparently this weird nose and everybody could identify the Habsburg family based on their, uh, the, 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 the big nose. They married their first cousins, double cousins occasionally, uncle, niece, married too. So this isn't too outside of the ordinary. Now back to the story. Yes, um, it's a half-truth or half-lie. 
But the motivation is clear. Abram is concerned mostly for his life. There doesn't seem to be an inkling of concern for his, his wife. And he's telling his wife to lie for him, even though it might mean her being taken away from him. And who knows? Who knows how Sarai must have felt after years of marriage to Abram to hear this man tell her to lie for her, for him. And unfortunately, this lie goes out. And it does take a life of its own. And everything that could possibly go wrong, goes wrong. In verse 11, Abram says that the Egyptians might consider Sarai beautiful. And the Genesis writer echoes those words exactly in verse 14. He says, the Egyptians saw that she was a very beautiful woman. And in verse 12, Abram said that he thought that he might be killed and, and uh, her, his wife taken away. Well, in verse 15, Pharaoh's officials see her. And takes her. And the problem is as big as it could get at this point. She's not taken by some Joe Schmo, some other, um, some Egyptian out there, but by the Pharaoh. If someone less important took her, maybe he could put up a fight. But the Pharaoh's officials see her and take her to the most powerful man of the most powerful civilization at the time. The situation seems dire. It's not, it's, it's incorrectable, it's irrectifiable. But that's not the end of it. The Pharaoh pours these gifts upon Abram. In verse 16, Pharaoh treated Abram well for Sarai's sake. He receives sheep, cattle, male and female donkeys, men and maidservants. And camels, he becomes a rich man. And you might think this was a good thing for him. But I don't think this can't, this, that, that, that's the truth. Because if you think about it, wouldn't all those riches have been a daily reminder for him of what he has done, of his cowardice? Visible reminder of the fact that he effectively sold his wife. A visible reminder that his wife is somewhere else with another man. I don't want to speculate too much outside of the Bible, but if Abram is like any other man, I'm sure he didn't sleep that night. I'm sure he asked, what could I have done? So this didn't happen. I'm sure he would have felt hemmed in and powerless. He might not even have been able to lift his face to God. After all, he was a, cho- he was a chosen man, a man for all nations. A great name, a source of blessing for everyone. And at the height of that despair, Yahweh intervenes, God intervenes. Yahweh appears in the story, and look to verse 17. But the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because Abram's wife, Sarai. Yahweh inflicted serious disease, a Jewish commentator infers that this might have been a genital disorder, preventing intercourse. In that case, you might imagine a tense conversation between Pharaoh, uh, Pharaoh and Sarai at, the, uh, at night, ending in a, 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 a confession by Sarai, saying, I am actually Abram's wife. However, Pharaoh was told of the situation, God intervened and stops and rescues Sarai. 
I think then we um, reach the most intense moment of the story when this most powerful man in the world summons Abram and angrily condemns him for what he has done in verse 18. What have you done to me? Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? So I took her to be my wife. He can't believe of the cowardice of Abram and tells him off. He's disgusted with Abram. And at this point, we're left to wonder what would be the price of endangering the life of the most powerful man in the world? Of deceiving him. But here's the surprise ending in verse 19. Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. No punishment. Pharaoh gave orders to escort them out of Egypt with everything that they received. And the story ends with Abram not having been harmed in any way, going out of Egypt with the riches he had gained. Now, before we go on to talk about what this means for us, I want to just make a point about the nature of Scripture. Um, Point two. Not everything that the characters do in the Bible are examples for us to follow. So this isn't an example for us to follow. Many events are recorded as warnings for us, not examples for us to emulate. So at this point, I want to pause and warn you of some of the things that you can't do out of this passage. You can't say, I'm free to marry my cousin. You can't, it, this, it, this story isn't giving you a permission to tell half lies or get yourself into trouble. The lesson isn't, God will rescue you no matter what trouble you get into. That's not the lesson. In fact, God didn't always deliver God's people, especially if their sin had been prolonged and rebellious. Israel, as a nation, wasn't delivered from Assyria. They were sacked. Nor was Judah delivered from Babylon. They learned their lesson hard way. They went into exile. God does deliver in this particular situation because his word is at stake. He made this promise. Abram's seed will be a blessing for all nations. And that was a promise made to him. And Sarai needed to be preserved. And so God intervened. But the story makes clear that Abram is in the wrong. Even Pharaoh, if you think about it. Pharaoh the Gentile. Pharaoh the idolater rebukes him and says, What is this? You have done to me. And if you think that that's just Pharaoh's words, it actually echoes God's word given to um, Adam in the Garden of Eden. Remember, God says to Adam, what have you done? What is this you have done? And just as Adam is banished from the garden, Abram is banished from Egypt. And if you still think, well, he still had the riches He gained a lot of things out of this story. Well, it's worth mentioning that the ill-gotten riches of Egypt cause him trouble most of his life. As you'll see in next chapter, next week with Carl. Um, The riches that he gained becomes a cause for his strife between Lot and his family. So all the livestock that he gained compete for grazing land with Lot's family, and it becomes a cause for that split and secondly, it's very possible that one of the maidservants that he, 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 he got out of Egypt was Hagar. Remember, Hagar was an Egyptian. 
And you know what happens with Sarai and Hagar, Hagar and Abram's life. So the Bible in no way condones what Abram is doing. And it's not giving us a license to sin. The story does not condone deception. In fact, in fact, it embarrasses Abram. It shames him. And some Christians believe they can lie and do bad things. Well, because God will work out all things for those who love him. But that's not a license to sin. In fact, our sins are even more glaring, glaring, and even more embarrassing in the light of God's rescue of each one of us. And just as it was even more embarrassing for Abram when Pharaoh rebukes him, For us Christians, when our non-believing friends find us lying, it's even more embarrassing and more shameful. So first, don't take this as a license to sin. But also, let's think about why. Why do we lie in the first place? Why did Abram lie at that point? Abram lied because he couldn't find security in God. As he entered Egypt... He thought that the lies that he built around him would keep him safe. God called him out of Ur and Haran. God promised Abram that he would be a blessing for all nations. God promised that his descendants will receive the land of Canaan, that his name will be great. But he failed to trust God as he faced the dangers of being a foreigner in Egypt. And so often, I think we do the same. Don't we? Why do we go lie when we face trouble? We lie to our bosses, to our friends, to people around us. Because we feel safer in our lies than telling the truth and facing the consequences. We believe that we can protect our reputation, our standing before people, our sense of security before people by lying. But when we lie, we betray our lack of confidence in God. We show ourselves to disregard all the things that God has done for us, all the prayers that God has answered, all the ways that God has rescued us in in, in our lives. We forget the way that God had intervened in history, God in the way that God had had intervened in our own lives. And whether our lives work or not, they betray our lack of confidence in the Almighty God. So, when we face difficult situations, at work, family conflicts, relationship problems, or whatever it is, let's not put our trust in our ability to manipulate the truth, to tell half-truths. Let's trust in God who moves history, who moved us, uh, who who, who, uh, uh, who, who loved us and who died for us. Trust Him with all situations, whatever the trouble is, and tell the truth, no matter the consequences. If this story reveals Abram's shame for not revealing, not trusting God, it should teach us to put our trust in God when we face our difficult situations. Our God is a God who delights in rescuing, God who is able, God who can answer our prayers. And he is trustworthy. But finally, um, in this instance, God does rescue Abram out of his shame in a way that God will do again and again throughout the Old Testament and throughout the Bible. 
In fact, theologians call this a, a typology, a type, a type of God's rescue that will take place again and again throughout the Bible. And I wonder if you caught the foreshadowing, foreshadowing of Exodus in this story, the deliverance of Israel out of Egypt with Moses in this story. Did you see the details here? We're told in verse 10 that there was a famine in the land. Of course, Israel, or his other other name is Jacob, Jacob's family faces a, a severe famine. Abram goes down to Egypt to find survival. Jacob sends his son down to Egypt to find food. And later on, the whole family ends, ends up in Egypt. In the Exodus story, there is killing of male babies. In our story, Abram fears that he might be killed. Israel and Exodus come out of Egypt with great wealth. Abram comes out of this story with sheep, donkey, cattle, um, servants. And if you're still not convinced that there is, a, uh, there is this link, look to verse 17. The NIV says that the Lord inflicted a serious disease, serious, uh, serious disease, diseases, diseases on Pharaoh. But the literal translation is a, te- a terrible plagues, plagues. Terrible plagues that covered Pharaoh and his household. God will send those plagues again. Later on, as part of God's deliverance of Israel out of Egypt. And Pharaoh says, take her and go. And it sounds a bit like Moses says, let my people go as well. Clearly, the writer is hinting, hinting at Exodus that is to come. And Exodus, as you know, is the defining event of Israel's history. To a Jewish person, there could not have been a greater deliverance, the greater story of rescue. It's the story of Yahweh's might, his power over Egyptian gods, his power to part the sea and rescue, his power to bring food from heaven and water from the ground. Exodus, remember, uh, remembers God as Yahweh, the warrior God. It's the story of God's rescue of people living in slavery to make them, to form a great nation out of them. And as great as that story was for the Israelites, the Exodus event itself is a type of a greater rescue to come of Christ's rescue of each one of us. In Exodus, the people become a nation through crossing the Red Sea. The great symbol of our rescue is going through the baptismal water. Exodus, in, in Exodus and Passover, the lamb was sacrificed and his blood marked God's people. We declare in communion of the lamb that was sacrificed for us. And we eat of that, uh, that body and drink that blood. And that blood marks us as God's children. Exodus was a rescue of people enslaved to a person, to Pharaoh. Christ rescues us from Satan, sin, and the power of death. Abram lied. And that small lie trapped him into a situation he could not get out of. Israelites, generations later, become trapped in Egypt, enslaved to the whims of Pharaoh. 
But you know, that's a condition for all of us. Sin does that to us. Sin traps us and enslaves us. And in front of God, we become trapped in God's wrath and anger towards our sin. And nothing that we could do could deliver us out of that trap. But Yahweh intervened in Abram's life. Yahweh delivered the Israelites out of Egypt. And that Yahweh becomes a God, I mean, becomes a man in Christ Jesus to live a perfect life for us, to die for us, to rise again for us, to deliver us out of servitude to sin and the trap of God's wrath towards us. God is God of rescue. And the Bible is, record, uh, Bible is a record of God, God's great rescues for us. And we are his redeemed people. And this isn't a license to sin but a cause to celebrate, a cause to bring honor and glory to God. It's a reason for which we, we need to hold ourselves to a higher standard and reason for which to tell others about Christ and celebrate his mighty works in our lives. Amen.